who. No foolish heroics, if you please. Is. Dark Man. What's up, everybody? Welcome to a special mini-episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me today is no one. This is a little something different we're trying out here. Turns out that Nat and I are both busy people, and recording, producing, editing, and distributing a podcast on top of our regular workaday lives has been a bigger challenge than we anticipated. But we don't want to leave you with a week without a podcast. We already did that once and we weren't particularly happy about it. So this is a new thing we're trying out where if we don't have time to put a full episode out for a week, one of us will just do a little mini episode by ourselves covering some of the movies that we aren't going to get a chance to cover on the main feed. If we had our way, we would cover literally every film that was released in the year 1990. But that just doesn't make sense and would require too much time and have us talking about way too many movies that nobody has seen, heard of, or remembers. But in the process of putting together our schedule, there were a bunch of movies that got dropped that we both wish we could fit in somewhere. So this is going to be the perfect opportunity for us to talk about some of those. Today, I'm going to be discussing Sam Raimi's freshman superhero effort, the film Darkman. If you haven't seen Darkman, I'll say right up front, you should check it out. It is a lot of fun. It is probably the most successful of the post-Batman pulp hero movies to come out of Hollywood. And I think that's a great place to start, because when Batman comes out in 1989, it changes the film industry in a way that very few movies do. I think I would compare it to stuff like Jaws and the original Star Wars in the way that it shifts the mindset of the people making movies. Batman, beyond being a wildly successful commercial film, also was a massive merchandising bonanza. And as soon as that hit the market... Every studio wanted their Batman. They wanted some property that they could adapt that would have a built-in audience, that they could sell a crapload of toys, that they could make a bunch of sequels. And so in that milieu, we get a bunch of Batman knockoffs. The big mistake that the studios made that took them about a decade to correct was thinking that it wasn't superheroes that was the key, that it was pulp heroes. And so they turned, instead of looking at the other successful comic book characters to radio serial characters like the shadow and the phantom and to Dick Tracy, which we'll be talking about in just a few weeks. And Darkman fits kind of neatly in between the two. It comes out of Sam Raimi's desire to make a superhero film. And according to what I've read, according to legend, he originally did want to make Batman. And of course that went to Tim Burton and Warner brothers. And then he wanted to try and adapt the shadow Of course, that will eventually get made with Alec Baldwin. And he can't get either of those right, so he decides to make his own hero, which is Darkman. And Darkman exists in this wonderful liminal space where it is part universal monster movie, it is part superhero film, it is part pulp hero like The Shadow, and it kind of has the best of all of those things. The movie is a very tight 95 minutes. I really love a movie that's short, that gets to the point, and it's a ton of fun. Raimi cut his teeth on the first two Evil Dead movies, And that's where he establishes this really dynamic style that he uses to great effect in this film. I am particularly struck by the opening montage of 
the scientist main character, Peyton Westlake, played by Liam Neeson, where he is developing his artificial skin technology. And he shoots it like Ash suiting up an Evil Dead 2 with whip zooms and pans and crazy cuts. And it's super dynamic as we watch a computer fabricate a fake nose. It's absurd and it's comical, but it's also really gripping and effective. And it goes a long way to elevating the otherwise low budget aesthetic just the energy of the film keeps you pushing through it when it would be too cheesy to take it seriously i we should talk about liam neeson for a few minutes this is kind of a big get for the movie neeson has already a decade plus into a reasonably successful career but he's yet to break out as a major serious actor That'll happen in a few years with films like Rob Roy and Michael Collins and, of course, Schindler's List. At this time, he has done a few melodramas. His first big break is in the John Borman Excalibur in 81, where he plays one of the Knights of the Round Table. But he's had other films since then that have certainly established him as a character actor, as a star for your low-budget film. Seeing him in this is a bit of a surprise. He doesn't feel like the kind of no-name actor that Raimi had populated his earlier films with. And Raimi does have a little bit more money to work with. And I think the material really appealed to Neeson. He talks about how he was really interested in exploring acting through a mask. And that's where he really excels in this film. Whenever he is dark man with these horrifying prosthetics all over his face and bandages wrapped around him, when he's just grunting gutturally and moaning and wailing, he's really good. I think he's less successful when he needs to play square-jawed, straight-laced Peyton Westlake, who's just kind of boring. And there are a few scenes in this movie that I'll talk about in just a few minutes where that really drags down proceedings. Neeson is joined by Frances McDormand. McDormand comes to the movie because she was once roommates with Sam Raimi. Raimi was friends with the Coen brothers in their early days and even lived with them, and that's when he and McDormand met. So I think that she's also a pretty big get for the film, although, again, this is before she really breaks out, which she doesn't do until she gets in a few of the Coen's films. But she'd certainly been in a few. Blood Simple is before this. Again, despite the fact that she is a tremendous actor, she feels like a poor match for the material. She has most of the worst scenes in the film, which are the kind of boring scenes between her and Peyton. And she just feels sort of aloof and disconnected from the material. There are stories from the set that she and Raimi had different visions about the way the character should be portrayed and the way the film would be successful. And the movie works when it's clearly on Raimi's wavelength with the hyperconnect visuals and the very pulpy comic book style. And it's less successful when it's going for this more idyllic real world aesthetic that it's employing to contrast with the heightened reality of dark man's world, but ultimately just comes across as boring. A few other cast members worth mentioning. We've got Larry Drake, who was a TV star at the time. He plays Robert Durant, the gangster villain. He's pretty great in this film. He looks like a 40s movie mobster, but he has this very quiet mannered persona. He speaks softly. He's very controlled. He's very intelligent. And that contrast is really fun and separates him from the other mobster heavies that you'd see in this kind of movie. And then we've got Colin Friels as Strack, the true villain of the movie, the corrupt real estate developer. 
a trope that I feel like was happening a lot at the time. Everyone was really cautious of these capitalists running wild in their cities. Now, I had to look up twice to confirm that this was not Christopher McDonald because he looks and sounds so much like Christopher McDonald in this movie. Colin Friels is fine if you want a Christopher McDonald type, but he's probably less of a standout than Drake playing Durant. Durant is the villain that they bring back in the future sequels, and it's pretty obvious why he definitely jumps off the screen more. Let's quickly go through the plot of the movie. We start with some really efficient scenes establishing Durant. He muscles out another mobster with a scene that makes good use of a fake leg to conceal an Uzi. It's pretty fun. Right away, the movie tells you how ridiculous it's going to be because the logic of this mob shootout doesn't make a lot of sense. There's like 100 guys versus 12, and the 12 guys are disarmed. All they have is the leg Uzi, but then all of a sudden they all have weapons, and there's cars driving out of storage crates. But it's, again, super kinetic, full of a ton of energy and a lot of fun. And I think it's a good litmus test, because if you can get over the absurdity of the scene and just enjoy it for what it is, then you'll probably enjoy the movie. And if you can't, then it's a good time to turn it off. We haven't even had the opening title yet. Then we get a few scenes establishing the relationship between Neeson and McDormand. I actually like these first couple of scenes better than the later ones. They're not very melodramatic, and they are hyper-efficient in establishing the relevant pieces of these characters' information, as well as the plot-relevant information, like the fact that Westlake is developing a synthetic skin, which will, of course, come back later. We are also introduced to Strack, who discovers that McDormand's character, Julie Hastings, is on to the fact that he is paying off members of the development board, that he is corrupt, and that he may be working with Durant the mobster. And immediately afterwards, Durant attacks Neeson's lab. I just want to commend Raimi for the pacing of this film, because I think normally there would be some scenes in between here as we flesh out the tension of, is Strack a bad guy? Is Julian danger? What does Strack know about Peyton? All of this stuff that would be fun, but isn't really why we came to a movie called Darkman. And he just gets it out of the way. He just goes straight to Peyton's lab. Durant shows up, kills Peyton's lab assistant, burns Peyton's hands and face, and blows up the lab. It's a really effective scene. It calls to mind both stuff from The Evil Dead, both part one and part two, and from his later films like the hospital attack sequence in Spider-Man 2, where Doc Ock eviscerates the surgical team. A lot of horror imagery and very, very high energy. I'm going to say that over and over again because it's the film's greatest strength is how exhilarating it all is. We then get uh, a little bit of business where we establish that because of an experimental medical treatment, Westlake can no longer feel pain and is getting constant adrenaline, making him stronger than a normal man. And because he cannot feel pain, he is emotionally unstable. And we also get some business where Julie and Strack begin to get closer. And very, very quickly, we get to Peyton establishing a new lab in an abandoned warehouse and developing the persona of Darkman, this avenging vigilante who can craft the faces of the mobsters that attacked him to hide himself amongst their ranks, to steal their money, to plot intricate revenges, while also being imbued with these superpowers of extra strength and not being able to feel pain. And most of the movie from there is intercut between Peyton getting his revenge on the various members of Durant's gang and 
Peyton and Hastings reuniting and trying to recover their relationship that was destroyed when Peyton was seemingly killed. The scenes with him dismantling the mob are a ton of fun. Raimi makes great use of the mask mechanic. It's like a proto Mission Impossible movie with lots of fun fake outs and two people looking at each other with the same face and masks on masks. It's really fun. And a lot of it feels like Raimi working out the kinks that he will perfect in Spider-Man 1 and particularly Spider-Man 2. There are shots that he recycles wholesale. There's this amazing shot of Peyton staggering through a rain-drenched alleyway. And it starts high and cranes down until it's right on ground level. And it's straight out of Spider-Man dropping his costume in the trash can in Spider-Man 2. And it's fantastic. It looks so good. It looks way better than you'd think a film of this budget would look. The scenes between Peyton and Hastings, where Neeson and McDormand have to play this contrasting relationship, are not nearly as good. Again, both of them feel weirdly disconnected from these parts of the movies, and it feels like Raimi is more concerned with establishing the contrast between the life Peyton had and the life he is stuck in now to actually make these scenes successful in their own right. They do culminate in a really fun freakout at a carnival where Neeson breaks the finger of a barker and goes totally insane and throws him through a wall over whether or not he should get a stuffed pink elephant that is really fun and campy and has more of the energy of the other scenes in it. I think that payoff makes these scenes worth it, but I was definitely starting to tune out a little bit uh, as Peyton tries to find his humanity again. Because... Really, it's, it's not what we're there for. We want to see him be Darkman. The story culminates in two back-to-back -back set pieces. The first is an attack on Peyton's lab by Durant, which is definitely the highlight of the film. There's a rooftop chase with a grenade launcher from a helicopter trying to shoot Darkman as he jumps from roof to roof. Then there's a stealth sequence in Darkman's lab that feels like Nolan lifted it wholesale for the dock attack in Batman Begins. There's even a guy saying, where are you? And Darkman saying, close, instead of here, and then attacking him from above. Then there's a slightly less successful sequence, but still pretty fun, of Darkman and Strack facing off on the top of a building under construction, jumping from girder to girder. I don't think this scene is quite successful because... We haven't seen Strack be a physical threat. This is often the problem that you have where there's a gangster villain and then like a, 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 a businessman villain who are fighting the same guy. The businessman just feels like a chump compared to the much more dangerous secondary character he had under his employee. They do a quick job of establishing that Strack had some familiarity with the environment, but that probably could have stood to be set up earlier in the movie maybe with a scene of them at the construction site with Strack viewing his development in progress, that would have probably been enough to sell this a little bit better. But it's also just less visually impressive and less exciting than the chase because it's two men jumping from beams for a few minutes before they both fall off. It also does dirty by McDormand's character where she has to become a damsel in distress, which feels pretty shallow. It's really just there to give... Peyton the choice between revenge and rescuing Hastings, and that is pretty reductive of McDormand's character. But there is one thing that really sets this scene apart 
the prosthetic work on Neeson's face is phenomenal throughout this entire movie. And his design, which is lifted pretty wholesale from the shadow, but with shades of the Invisible Man, is great too. He spends most of the movie with bandages wrapped around his face, wearing a dark trench coat and fedora. But throughout the movie, those bandages start to pull away and we see more and more of his scars. The half of his face and the entire jaw is just burned up. So he looks sort of like Two-Face and his teeth are exposed to this tremendous... Uh, false teeth thing where he has no lips they've been burned away but we can't really see it it's obscured in the bandages and in shadows and Raimi does a great job building to it and building to it and as Peyton becomes more inhuman in his quest for revenge his visage becomes more inhuman too as the bandages are pulled away and we see more of his deformity and it really pays off in this final sequence when the bandages are finally cast aside and we get to see his phantom of the opera scarring in full view it looks great. It really does. You can tell that a lot of time was spent on making it look as good as it did and probably a fair amount of the budget. And Neeson is really committing to this acting through the mask stuff. He feels much more zoned in on these scenes than he does when he's just being himself. And I love it. It really is what sets this sequence apart, seeing him in his full horror. It's also where this movie really draws from the universal horror films, which again are a big influence on them. We've got our mad scientist lab. We've got our, our monstrous person and this confrontation between the love interest and the man who has become a monster feels ripped straight out of a bunch of those movies. We then get our final payoff where Peyton rejects the chance to return to his normal life and puts on a new mask and flees into the streets as he's being chased by McDormand. We get a great little cameo from Bruce Campbell as the final form. Raimi supposedly wanted Campbell for the role, but of course he wasn't a big enough star to carry the film. But he gets a nice little cameo here, and his credit's fun. He's called Final Shemp. Shemp is a reference to the Three Stooges. And yeah, that's the movie. It moves very quickly. Again, 95 minutes. I love a nice, tight, short movie, but it doesn't feel like anything's been cut out. The story is just compact and efficient and hits all the beats it needs to hit. It's also surprisingly robust in its action scenes the attack on the lab culminates in this helicopter chase where peyton is hanging from a cable beneath a helicopter that i was frankly stunned they were able to pull off it looks great it calls to mind the matrix and mission impossible fallout and all these movies that will come years later and cost hundreds of millions of dollars more than this movie did but this one's just as good as those it's a little bit cheesier we've got a fun sequence of dark man dodging cars on a freeway as he's being dragged under the helicopter and literally running across the roof of an 18 wheeler but it's a great light-hearted romp ultimately the tone of this movie is its greatest success where it's both macabre and campy and fun and dramatic it really hits that nail on the head that, again, Raimi will return to in the Spider-Man movies, particularly Spider-Man 2, which is so operatic and so big in its emotional ambitions. And this really hits that same note. The film costs $60 million. It ultimately grosses just shy of $50 million, So it was a reasonable success. There are a couple sequels that went straight to video. I haven't had a chance to check those out yet. But by all accounts, they lack some of the... Je ne sais quoi, some of the, 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 the Raimi magic, some of the juice that he had that he brought to all of his movies. And the movie's legacy is really as this midway point. 
as Raimi is transitioning from the independent horror sphere to studio filmmaking. His follow-ups to this are Army of Darkness and then Quick and the Dead, a fun Western that he made. And then just a few years after that, he'll begin work on Spider-Man, which will totally change his career and will change Hollywood forever. Let's quickly touch on some 90s themes. We talked a little bit at the top of the episode about the rise of pulp heroes, which we will touch on again in the Dick Tracy episode. And again, this presages the superhero genre that will come to dominate Hollywood a decade later, just like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I also think the movie is a fun callback. It's full of homages to older films. There are specific shots that call back to Psycho and Vertigo. Raimi was a big devotee of Hitchcock. And you can see that in a lot of his movies and the styling of his movies and the way he uses very designed shots. I feel like aesthetically, this film feels a little out of place with the other movies we've watched, which are aping for a much more naturalistic style. This movie is very subjective. It's very expressionistic and it feels sort of removed from the other films of the time and from where Hollywood will go in the future. But because of that, it sort of stands out. It's a movie that distinguishes itself from the dreck that it could have easily fallen into. Lastly, uh, it's worth mentioning again, we have a, a capitalist villain. This is another movie that paints the excessive greed of the 80s as this corrupting influence that has infected society, even more so than crime, because obviously this movie has crime and has criminals. It is the capitalist who is the true cause of the moral degradation and the social degradation. So that's Darkman, and this has been a Back to the Movies mini. We'll bust these out pretty infrequently, but this way we can cover a few of the films that we would have otherwise left on the cutting room floor. I hope you all enjoyed. Make sure to tune in next week when we talk about a great film, Paul Verhoeven's Total Recall. I'm really excited for that one, a movie I dearly, dearly love. So this has been Signing Off. And we'll see you next week when we go back to the movies. Oh.